Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hi, everybody, and welcome back to the New Books Network and New Books in History and New Books in East European Studies today. I'm your host, Stephen Siegel, and it's my great pleasure to have an extraordinary book today to talk about with author Alessia Hromechuk, who is here from London. She's going to be talking about this book. It's called A Loss, The Story of a Dead Soldier Told by His Sister. This is published by Ibidem Press, uh, distributed by Columbia University Press as part of its Ukrainian Voices series, just out now in 2021. So thank you, Alessia, so much for joining me today for a conversation. Stephen, thank you very much for having me. It's a, it's an honor. Well, I, I really um, want to talk about this book um, with you, and it's so difficult to start with because this is a, a war memoir, and it's it's autobiographical and it's personal. Um, but I think our listeners should definitely know that you're, you're trained as a historian, so a historian and writer. From your bio, uh, Dr. Alessia Hermecho received her PhD in history from University College London. She has taught history of East Central Europe at University of Cambridge, UCL, the University of East Anglia, and King's College London. Uh, And she's also written a book which I think should be read. Uh, It's called Undetermined Ukrainians, Post-War Narratives of the Waffen-SS Galicia Division, Galicin, uh, published by Peter Long in 2013. Um, And Dr. Hromechuk is currently the director of the Ukrainian Institute London. So uh, I, you know, admire this fact, this turn um, toward toward something so personal. And I'll start with a question about your motivation. So maybe you could give us an idea of what, under the circumstances, turned turned you toward this project. Thank you, Stephen. Um, it's sort of tricky to talk about it because I never planned to write this book. And the very first line in the book, in the acknowledgments, is that I would have preferred not to have written this book. I would have preferred not to have had the subject matter to write about um, because the book is about my brother's death at the front line. He volunteered to serve in 2015 in the Ukrainian Armed Forces and he was killed uh, in Luhansk Oblast um, at the front line in 2017. Um, but since the subject matter materialized, um, the book materialized too, and uh, now I am glad to have written it. Uh, It's interesting that you you mentioned that um, I'm trained as a historian. Indeed, it was one of the challenges while Mm. writing this book, being a historian. Um, At the same time, it kind of helped me too, because all my historical work, all my research, uh, or most of it has been about war in one form or another, another. Um, the Second World War in particular, but also more recently, this current war, I looked at uh, gender, um, um, gender and militarization in particular. And I noticed that uh, stories of women or by women, uh, stories of civilians um, um, are so rare that, you yeah. know, they are not really heard. Um, and this was my opportunity, I guess, to, to introduce some of these stories. Um, mm-hmm. Maybe I'll 
briefly tell you the kind of prehistory of this book because, uh, as I said, it was never, it was never, you know, I, I never planned to write anything like that. Um, for the first six months or so after my brother's uh, death, um, I, I couldn't even speak about it, uh, what, about what happened, really, apart from you know, in conversations with my family and really, really close friends. And then, so sort of six months. Um, later i realized that i can't not speak about it either something i had to do something with with my grief with the overwhelming conflicting emotions um and i guess i started to do what i know best i started to write but not for publication it's just to kind of process mm, right. my thoughts um, while writing yeah and so yeah. i started to write these kind of sketches and so rebecca solnit in one of her essays has a has an interesting line she says writing is saying to no one and to everyone the things that it is not possible to say to someone right mm, so mm. while not being able to to speak about these things to someone i started to write to no one and to and to everyone at the same time and i brought these sketches to my theatre company. I have a small theatre company in London called Molde Teatro London and shared shared those sketches with my friends because the, the actors of that company are also my friends and were there for me for those first six months. And they suggested to me that we should uh, maybe try and make a play out of it. Uh, yeah. And that's what we did. And that's what we did. So I then wrote some more sketches. We developed it into a play, which uh, we called All That Remains. And we took it to, we performed in London. We also took it to the biggest theatre festival uh, in the world, uh, the Edinburgh Fringe. Um, and, and that's how the kind of writing developed. Um, and when mm -hmm. we stopped performing the play, partly because... Um, it just seemed like a, a logical time to stop performing it, partly because of the pandemic, we were no longer able to perform um, in person. We, I, I realized that there are so many things that uh, I've not included in the play, partly because I've not had the, the time to process them, but also maybe because it was just I just felt too vulnerable to speak about them from the stage. Um, and I continued writing. <laughs> mm. And that turned into a book. Uh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I, I, I think that's that's a great you know, opening uh, libretto here, and and I think like in many ways, I, as I was reading this, I, I felt like I was sitting there in the theater, and imagining the the objects, imagining in, in some ways the archive that you went through, um, and and trying, like in that kind of William Blake style that that you mentioned with these sketches, <laughs> lo looking at the designs trying to get to know your brother and, and picture your brother and, and thinking about even kind of like the props that you would use in, in, right. in, the, in the play. And, right. and I wonder if you might, might talk about the character that you create, because you obviously have, have a character, which is the I, you know, your, your sort of ego documents and you're telling the story in the first person. But, but what did you collect about him um, I see this as, as in some ways like using all of the skills that you have as a historian. Um, what, what were some of the things that, that you that you gathered, and then um, and then of course introduced the audience to? Yeah, what a what an excellent question, and certainly not uh, an easy one to answer. But that's precisely what happened. I think. I mean, that, that's why we call the play "All That Remains" is is because I tried to sort of piece um, these bits and pieces of. Um, well, of, of what remained of my brother together to create uh, a memory of him, I suppose. Um, the, the objects, um, among some of the most important objects for me were his phone um, mm. that I didn't even know what to do when I when we yeah. received his belongings from um, 
uh, from a friend of mine who was actually who who found herself at the front line at the time. She's a she's a well known volunteer in Ukraine, Maria Berlinska, and and she brought my brother's bag uh, back from the front line, and we sat uh, on her kitchen floor in Kiev with my mom and my partner going through these belongings and trying to work out what to do with them. And the phone was one of them, and I didn't know what to do with it, but I should have a look at it, look through the pictures, look through the text messages or what. Eventually, I did do that. And I found um, some of the videos that he recorded, and those became really important for me as well. He recorded three videos, uh, and one was recorded the day before he he died. Um, He was killed in the same trench, essentially. And and they're kind of... They're extremely moving because they're sort of funny. He tries to make jokes as he as he describes his surroundings. He seems completely on his own um, mm. in that trench, and that probably was a way of you know communicating with the world. I don't think he sent those videos to anybody, mm. but you know he describes what yeah. he can see. He describes. Um, the, the the you know the paraphernalia that he has around him the radio transmitter the bulletproof vest and so on and the trench itself and at one point he says look at this winter it's beautiful and there's <laughs> very little beautiful about it I mean it's it's essentially a snowy steppe <laughs> you know yeah. and a yeah. war zone so that was one of the very important sort of objects for me the phone and then the videos which I actually included in the play and I quote uh, them in the book too. Um, then um, the his his drawings um, that he left behind. He 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 was an artist, and for me, that's how I know him. I know him as an eccentric, uh, difficult. Mm. Yeah, I get that impression. You know, the, <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> right. Um, and, and I I hold on to those memories. I hold on to the memories of of my brother, the civilian, um, mm. and so everything else that's to do with. My brother, the warrior, my brother, the soldier, is so alien to me. Even even though a lot of the objects, I um, was instrumental in uh, finding. Um, so again, I describe in the book, and that was one of the sketches that I wrote, how I bought uh, half of the stuff that he needed at the front line. So starting from socks yeah. and t-shirts and ending with, you know, I didn't actually manage to buy a bulletproof vest, but I tried. But the boots, the boots, the iron tell, boots. Tell us, tell us that story, would you, Alessia, about the boots? I think, I think that it's it's a very, it's almost like an Ukrainian folkloric story. I think like, Gosh, it's so yeah. interesting to to get that impression. Could you get, could you give our listeners like all all the you know impression of the the obstacles and the headache and everything that you had to do in in order to get the, this list of army supplies, including. Yes, of course. Uh, that essay, by the way, was published separately by Kritika, so it can be uh, read in Ukrainian and in English uh, online, even even uh, separately from from the book. And and it's also part of the the, the play. Um, so perhaps not a lot of your listeners will realize that the Ukrainian army, when the war uh, started, when um, uh, Russia um, invaded, uh, essentially Russian Russian army invaded Eastern Ukraine. Um, Ukrainian army wasn't in a good state at all. Um, and um, a lot of the things, I mean, more or less everything had to be bought either by the soldiers and their families themselves or um, uh, volunteers, volunteer organizations. And volunteer organizations replaced the state for at least the first months, if not years, of this of this war. Um, and while I found it quite difficult to reconcile my 
um, sort of, you know, feelings towards this situation because I felt like, you know, a lot of my friends were volunteers, were collecting money or items to send to the front line. And I, I felt that, you know, that was the job of the state and we should we should yeah. make sure that the state does what it's supposed to do and that supply its army and its soldiers with the necessary equipment. Um, and then my brother volunteered to go to the front and I became just as uh, obsessed with ensuring that I get all the mm. all the things that he, he needs as, as all of the volunteers that bef- before that. Um, one of the most difficult things was uh, as, uh, getting the army boots that, that he wanted, that I knew would be um, comfortable, that would be of the right uh, brand. Um, right. That would size. Be light, <laughs> that would yeah. be light, that would be waterproof, and that would be the right size. And his size turned out to be a very popular size, the size 41 in Europe, um, size 8 uh, UK size. And it was just extremely difficult to find, uh, really, really hard. Um, and I searched these websites every single day um, for army surplus sites. Um, and eventually, eventually, I found um, I, I had a lot of help from my friends, um, an army, a retired army man who's a very good friend of mine in Ukraine who kept advising me where to look. We eventually, I even thought, okay, there's, there's a decent pair of police boots. Maybe I should mm. go with them, but they were not waterproof. It was such a headache. But I found these British army boots. I bought them. I was so happy with them. And so was he when he received them. And of course, they were among the items that I recognized in the bag two years later when I received my brother's belongings from the front line. Um, And it completely broke my heart, of course, uh, to see them in front of me. Yeah. Yeah. I I mean, this, you know, moment that you're describing, um, which is the the annexation of Crimea, of course, in in March of 2014, and and then the Eastern Front in in Donbass, I think is, is such a, it, it's a, it's such a crippling moment. I, I don't know quite how to describe it, put it into words, because on the one hand, I read in your memoir, you have a professional life. You're working in, in some ways even in an anti-war capacity. And, and then there are things that happen. And I, I wonder if, if you might recover your old self as well. So I know you're, you're recovering your brother and, and you're going back through your memories of sending things like boots, you know, plus socks, foods, all of these sorts of things. But, but, but who, who were you before the war began? I'm, I'm really interested to ask this question. I, I get, I get the impression that you have multiple lives that you're working through in this. <laughs> what a, what a great and multifaceted question. Um, I'm going to try and answer um, briefly, <laughs> mm-hmm. um, because I could probably talk about it for several hours. Um, yeah, the- theater people, you know, are, are like classic multiple personality disorder. So that, like, that's my leading question to you. Not, not, not only in terms of my uh, sort of involvement in, in academia, theater, and and other things in life, but also I'm an immigrant. You know, I, I have yes. multiple identities. That's, that's it too. <laughs> What was I before? Maybe I'll try and focus on on the changes that happened. I my work, whether that was theatre work or academic work, was my life. Uh, has always been my life. So I love teaching. I really like research. I love interviewing people for my research, meeting them. I love the work in the archives. It sounds extremely boring. It's not. It's not boring at all. <laughs> I guess it depends on your on your topic. But mine have never been bore, boring because they they make you challenge what you what you think they 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 make you at each uh, research project 
turned me into a slightly different person because it it challenged my uh, ideas, it widened my horizons, it made me meet people with whom I disagreed profoundly, but could yes. have conversations and and essentially, you know, then become a slightly different person after those. And also stand my ground and, and understand that, aha, these are my principles. <laughs> okay, I get it now. Um, but still, um, even though it was really my life, all of those things, it was still a kind of work, right? Um, the war was, for me, the Second World War. When I talked about before the war, yes. after the war, I meant the Second World War. And then everything changed. Um, um, everything changed uh, when my brother went to the front. Uh, everything became extremely personal. Um, I became completely confused. I couldn't mm. understand what it means to be a um, soldier's sister. Um, a lot of people didn't know uh, that my brother right. said, would, and I kept it that way. A lot of people didn't know that he died as well. And I kept it that way for a long time um, because I did not want to be seen in my professional context um, as a token sister um, of a fallen soldier, right? Mm -hmm. right? It was very difficult for me to understand what it means. There were points when I couldn't, I found myself um, in a position that I thought that I could no longer teach war um, or write about war or research war because I've become so vulnerable um, personally and, and my family as well. And, and then the, I guess the major change was that I understood that vulnerability is an asset. <laughs> it's mm. something that we can use to, to channel our knowledge uh, in such a way that maybe we'll speak to people um, in ways that academic research doesn't necessarily speak to people. So, so that's what I'm trying to use now when I teach, when I write. Um, I'm not afraid of being vulnerable anymore. <laughs> I, I love that. I, I just want to like pause over that for a moment and, and, and think about it because I, I feel like when you're writing about grief, you, you talk about it as, as noble pain. <laughs> um, and, and I think it takes guts. It, there's no question. Um, it's not simply the guts of going to serve in a war. It's actually the guts of about you know, writing about it, the, the outward pain, which is inward pain. Um, and and I, I want you to, to talk about, if we can, your brother's character. So I, I, get, I get the impression in putting your family into the story, because you're um, you're the sister. You're also a, a daughter because your mother has a has a prominent role in the story too. How did you get to know him? I mean, who who is he? Is he seems like a comic and very deadpan, and and yet he did make that decision, um, like a lot of immigrants in the diaspora did, uh, to go back and and fight during the war. And, and I wonder if you could talk about the process of getting getting to know him through the story that you tell, since he's no longer around yeah another great question thank you um i don't think i know him <laughs> uh, i don't think anyone knows knows him or or people like him i think he kept himself to himself for, for much of his life and especially at the front that's what i heard from his comrades they a lot of a lot of them said oh he was extremely brave but we didn't necessarily get to know him. He 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 was also sort of you know reticent. Um, he he didn't necessarily share much about himself. Mm. I I know that he had multiple identities. I also know that he felt strangely comfortable 
in this new persona of a soldier that he found for himself. I mean, he served in the um, in the Ukrainian armed forces as a conscript in the 90s. And when he came back, he really wanted to serve, unlike a lot of young right. men. I certainly don't blame them. That's for a, no, no, ser- that's important. I, I actually think that's really important. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But, go but ahead. He, yeah, he wanted that. I described a little bit of that story as well, backstory of uh, how he actually found it difficult to join the armed forces and eventually he, he, he did. He wanted to serve, but when he came back, um, uh, he came back a sergeant, he, he said he would never join the army. He did not want to join the army professionally. He was completely disillusioned because of the abuses of, of the army, uh, the so-called didovshina, the bullying, um, um, yeah, and the corruption that he witnessed. I mean, he was a, he was a young man. It was a formative experience. And then he decides to volunteer. He, he did not get drafted, strangely, probably because of the messy situation that military commissariats were in at the time when the war broke out in, in Donbass. Um, but he decided to volunteer. To volunteer and join join uh, the armed forces as a volunteer um, in 2015, and felt weirdly comfortable in that role. And I could never mm. quite understand what made him so comfortable. Um, I think it might have been the fact that, um, well, he said when he was when he finished his first deployment and he came back to Lviv, I spoke to him on his birthday, which happens to be also the day of the Ukrainian armed forces, the sixth of December. Um, and he said, I'm going back. Uh, he just got demobilized and he decided to go back. And uh, I was very surprised. And I said, look, when I'm here as a civilian, I have nightmares and I can't deal with them. Um, mm, but when yeah. I'm here, I don't have nightmares. So maybe this appeal of relative clarity of some kind of black and white life appealed to him. Um, that's, yeah, that's probably one of those things. Also, um the the friendships that that form uh in that environment you know when yeah the intensity life and death the intensity of it I mean, he was he was an artistic soul he was an artist so he, i guess he was attracted to these to these emotions um he mm-hmm. did not go back to fight <laughs> that's one thing i'd like to make clear he lived mm. in the netherlands for 11 years and then he returned in 2010 he just decided that he had enough of uh, the life of an immigrant, and he would return to Lviv. He he absolutely adored our hometown. He wanted to live there. Um, but the obituaries, when I read them, um, all stated that he returned to fight because it makes a good story. <laughs> yes. I have a lot of questions about that, um, the disconnect between the actual, you yeah. know, sort of like canonization that takes place, yeah. this this yeah. path to sainthood that, that seems very common in, in the Ukrainian national imagination, for that matter, Ukrainian nationalism. Um, but it, the, the story is, is fascinating to me, Alessia, because it there are so many different directions that this 42-year-old man could could have taken Volodya at, at different points. And I, I guess, you know, I, what I'm interested in is, is your context. You mentioned it in, in Galicia, in Lviv. Um, you've written histories of the 20th century of, of, of Galicia and, and, and Lviv. And I guess I would, I would ask you, you know, if you could maybe put this in a larger, broader, for lack of a better word, objective historical 
context. What are what are the stories of, of these soldiers? Because I have the image in my mind of your mother, whom you describe very, very well, like many other good Ukrainian mothers who, who could potentially do her duty and pay a bribe and get him out of this if she knew the right people. But that's that's not the story. And maybe gender wise, it's not the story that 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 ends up happening when he volunteers. Right. Um, so the, the story about my brother, uh, my my mother trying to get my brother out of the army relates to his uh, years as a conscript um, in the in the early nineteen nineties. She certainly was prepared to to uh, make sure that he doesn't go to serve, um, and and he chose to serve. He really wanted to to uh, you know to do his um, duty and serve in the army. Um, when we look at um, the stories of soldiers who volunteered in uh, 2014, 2015, when the war broke out and in the Donbass, I think it's um, very tempting to put them in the larger historical context. And that's something that I think um, at least partly state endorsed historical narratives or um yeah, memory politics essentially have been trying to promote over the last few years is to kind of portray this this current war in Donbass that has been going on for seven years as one of the uh, one of the episodes of um, a Ukrainian struggle, historical struggle for uh, statehood and independence, and that might be how some people perceive it. Uh, but I think um, there's a danger of instrumentalizing historical narratives here and explaining away something that um, that should not be explained away, that should be contextualized. Um, mm. And I I don't know what motivated my brother exactly to volunteer. I have a feeling that being 42, living in Lviv and seeing people, young people, 18-year-olds, 19-year-olds, um, coming back either injured or dead from the front line, definitely was a motivational factor guilt um and yeah. pressure is a huge motivational factor and that That's might be point. the case for him um for others um and and of course yeah there was a, a sense of patriotic duty too uh, for others the reasons could be different um there are many people who joined the armed forces because that was a source of um earning some money for their families in, in the situation when uh, employment wasn't easy uh, to come by. Um, and we cannot, um, we cannot dismiss those reasons. And um, I, I am very much against uh, glorification of, you know, of um, um, the, the sort of drive to, to, uh, to fight in, in, in the armed forces. We need to, in, in the war, we need to see why people go to war. We need to respect those decisions, whatever they are. And the most important thing is not to uh, create some kind of myths. Um, because it's what I said when I, when I was reading the obituaries about my brother, I did not really recognize my brother behind them. And that was painful. It was difficult to, um, in, especially in those early days of, of grieving, t- to see that, aha, so this is how society wants to see someone like my brother, a dead soldier. Right. They want to see him a, a hero who left everything, comfortable life uh, in the West and went to fight in the war. That's not true. But surely his decisions can also be respected. Surely um, it doesn't make him less of a, a worthy character to write about. He, he did die at the front. Um, he might not have had the story that the journalists wanted to portray, but his story is worth telling too. 
to, just as any other story, just as all of the stories of servicemen and women who who go um, to fight in this war, and civilians who 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 either find themselves in the middle of this horrendous conflict or or, or leave in order not to be in the middle of that horrendous conflict. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm not sure I answered your question. Yeah, I, I, <laughs> no, I, I think I think I think you answered it. And and actually, I, I wanted I wanted to have you put on your historian's hat and, and talk a little bit more, if you can, about the process of research because. I think there are several processes, you know, there's the cathartic process and there's the therapeutic process and there's honoring your brother, which you absolutely do. And, and I have, I have to say this because you, you do it in a personal way and, and also in a historical way. Um, but I, I wonder, you know, since you mentioned these multiple identities, um, if you could talk a little bit about research for, for those of our listeners here on New Books Network who, who will recognize your work as a historian, um, you talk really interestingly and I think brilliantly about, about paperwork. Um, and, and this seems so prosaic, uh, but it, it's something that every single graduate student, really every student has to learn how to do when researching war and peace and truth and reconciliation and collaboration and all the other things in between. Um, so you have this, the section called 25 folders. This is one of your sketches. I, I, this is one of my favorites. And, um, you, you discuss like Maidan, you, you discuss, you know, the, the folders and what were care, what was carefully labeled. Could, could you give us an idea of the bureaucracy and the paperwork that, that you experienced in doing the research and, and then ultimately with your family and, and trying to sort out this death? Yeah. Yes, gosh, yeah. It was also one of the early pieces of uh, writing that I that I uh, did. It was <laughs> it was one of the very first texts that because I, I really needed to process this kind of bureaucratic nightmare that we had to go with my family, my mum in particular. Um, I, I rather unexpected too. So um, my mother hadn't been back for seventeen years. Um, the, the the time when she went back before my brother's death was to my other brother's um, wedding, uh, which took place in Lviv. Uh, I, I have two brothers. Um, so Yura got married 17 years before that. Um, and when we found ourselves, and, and so we were not familiar with uh, with the kind of bureaucracy, more generally speaking, uh, in, in, in Ukraine, um, in you know that we found in 2017 but specifically bureaucracy connected to the death of a soldier um the pieces of paper we had to collect um the various offices we had to go to um to get his death certificate to get his to submit his military papers they had actually been uh, mm-hmm. fighting in what was known as ATO at the, te- at the time, anti-terrorist operation. That's how the f- war was formally called um, at the time. Um, office to office to office. And luckily there were people, I described one of these people in, in the book, uh, Luba, her name is, who helped us navigate this serious <sighs> bureaucracy. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Without whom I think it would have been so much harder to find our way through it. But there were also 
bureaucrats, um, people who have tough jobs in these offices that are badly equipped, uh, that are understaffed, um, people who are very poorly paid, who were not particularly sympathetic to to us, and mm-hmm. you know d- did not necessarily treat us with um, any Kind, um, kindness. Kindness, not to mention <laughs> yeah. that's right. Thank you, Stephen. Yes. Yeah. Um, and yeah, and it was kind of tricky to navigate, but 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 necessary. And yeah, so so what I describe in that text is sitting in in one of the offices that we attended with my mom, and just looking at these folders and realizing, uh, counting them because I was bored uh, out of my mind, waiting and waiting and waiting, um, and counting them. I counted twenty five of them and realizing that um, um, a significant chunk of them were folders containing names and cases of veterans of so-called anti-terrorist operation of the war. Um, And that made me think, oh gosh, you know, how many are there in these folders already? Uh, This was only 2017. And just visualize the names and people behind these names. And for, you know, I've always tried to tell my students that we can't just talk about statistics. We, We can't talk about numbers. We have to think about people behind these behind these uh, numbers and, and even names and try and imagine their stories and how people are affected by wars. Um, and that's basically what I was trying to do, I suppose, myself um, um, too. It, it helped me, my historical training, I guess, helped me um, because in in the middle of um, this first week of um uh, grieving, uh, the funeral, uh, coming to terms with what happened. Um, we also had to sort out all these bureaucratic things with my mom. And I had my researcher's notepad <laughs> with me. And mm. it was almost second nature. As soon as I heard someone say, you know, you need to go to such and such office, you need to do this and, and that and collect such pieces of paper. I just uh, habitually opened it and started to write as I would write during my historical research, you know, um, writing names down, writing phone numbers, um, creating a plan, phoning people. And, and it really helped. Uh, and then also that same notepad helped me um, recollect these stories when I was writing. Because, I mean, the nature of memory is uh, very complicated, as, as we all know. Um, and, and you know, it fails you. You, you misremember. You, you Exactly. Yeah. My mom, I, I remembered the arrival in the airport in Lviv the day before the funeral, different to the way she remembered it. Um, so having little prompts, having uh, pieces of uh, documents, having my notepad really helped me reconstruct some of these things. And of course, yeah. now what I realize is the book itself uh, replaces some bits of my memory. Uh, I mm. know I have a narrative now. <laughs> And that might, maybe that's not so good, but that's what it is. I, I have a, a book and some of the texts are there instead of, uh, or at, as well as some of the memories, or, or they have simply replaced the memories that, yeah. that I have that period. And, and, and I love that because you're, you're explaining something that, that I teach about as well, that many of us who are historians of, of war teach about and, and the need to resist this quantification Right. Mm-hmm. I mean, I, I think, you know, it's not just since Snyder's Bloodlands, but way mm-hmm. back earlier, I know I was doing Holocaust history and, and translating from from Polish and Russian and Ukrainian. It's easier said than done mm-hmm. to say, let's have a name and, and respect the name and respect and honor the dead. 
make sure that that it's not just a number, but mm-hmm. when this process of, of quantification through the bureaucracy takes place through the, the depersonalization that you describe, it's almost like there's no turning back from it. And, mm-hmm. and, and I actually I love the fact that you capture that um, in so many of your sketches when you're going through the, the headache and the paperwork and the bureaucracy and, and ultimately, as you say, the instrumentalization. Um, I wonder, since, since I'm begging the narrative now, um, you have three, you have three sections in, in your book on the funeral, uh, and so the funeral part one, part two, part three. And I wonder if you have a master story of this, um, you describe the, the cemetery, maybe you can give our listeners a, an idea of the f- history of this famous cemetery in, in Lviv, um, Lemberg Vuf, Leopold, right? Um, but it, how how do you tell a story, one story, maybe even a master story that matches your experience and, and yet at the same time with this funeral re- resists the politicization process? That's a tough question. I should give you like a moment to think about it. Likachev is the, that's the cemetery that I'm thinking about, right? Likachev so, cemetery, um, uh, a very um, um, important, historically speaking, space for, for the city, um, the city that has such complex history that found itself in different states um, and, you know, in different em- well different empires too um and has been claimed by some yeah, has been claimed you know back to the polish ukrainian war of, of 191819 and before that to the world of empires but I, I guess my story for you is is the the narrative because you mm-hmm. do have you do have a story in it and it's a really hard one to tell um the burial that, that ultimately takes place with the funeral mm-hmm. i wonder if you, if you could introduce how how you tell that story um one of the reasons i think why i broke that story into three chat into three parts uh was because i found that i found it difficult to digest it myself the funeral is i guess the central story of the book um it was um i guess it was the 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 hardest to experience um and uh, the hardest to process later when I was writing it. Um, and so I think that's why I b- broke it down into three parts um, to, to, to have sort of chunks, you know, to then talk about something else and come back to it and talk about something else. Lichakiv as a space, like I said, it has significance for my city, uh, but also has personal significance for me. I spent a lot of, a lot of days uh, there just walking around, uh, looking at the graves. It's, it's a kind of open air museum, really. I mean, you see Polish graves, German graves, nice. um, red army graves, um, lots of um, obviously new U- Ukrainian graves too. And this big, military pantheon um that is expanding every time i go back to the cemetery i um i i see new and new graves uh, i i always go and and you know and check is there still space left for 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 new graves and the space is running out actually which is frightening really um but it's also a, sp- a space that's connected to my childhood and and, the kind of, and my, my brother's sense of humor. I remember when he um, told me the story, and I, I relay it in the, in, in the essay, when he was um, hanging out there in the evening with his mates and they saw an old, uh, older woman walking 
um, um, between the graves and they decided to sort of show off in front of each other and yeah. said, oh, madam, um, which grave is yours? And, and of course, she, she, um, she responded uh, and left them absolutely terrified. She said, oh, over there, that one, <laughs> that one's mine. <laughs> and it just always made me laugh, that thought. And when we entered in the hearse, um, that Lechakov Cemetery, I remembered that funny story. It was, again, that meeting of the personal, his, historical and political in the same space, the personal connected to, to my brother's story and my childhood walking around and learning about Lviv's history and Ukrainian complex histories through these graves, really. The kind of, the and the political, um, you know, the, the how we are going to, as society, commemorate these new... Um, yeah. Exactly. Yes. Um, in in a meaningful way, in a way that isn't just there for um, municipal and state authorities to come and lay flowers uh, on um, anniversaries and have pictures taken for their websites and their political campaigns. In a way that does not serve militarization of society only. In create a space that will allow us to come and contemplate and think and um, and and also I suppose grieve um, and maybe grieve collectively as society um, I describe a meeting uh, that happened at near my brother's grave um, yeah, of, of cozy grave right in your in your section yeah yeah uh, a, a, a guy who was just sitting there drinking beer in the afternoon um, and I spoke to him, and, and he was a war veteran. He actually uh, s- uh, served in the same battalion as my brother, but he never met him. That they they served at different times, and he just comes to sit there because he does not feel comfortable elsewhere. And uh, I realize that this should be our focus of um, um, of commemorative practices. The people. Um, not, not obviously, not just um, commemorating those who died in a meaningful way, the way that helps us heal as society, but also focusing on those who survived. Um, he said that he had no job. This this young man that I met, the veteran, he had no job to go to. Nobody would hire him. He was clearly visibly traumatized. You don't have to be yes. a, a psychologist to, to see that. He received no um, uh, counseling or, or, or any kind of therapy help at all since he came back. Um, and and it, and instead, he received text messages from various political parties uh, asking him to come and to the, you know, um, some kind of pre-election events and, and you know, be there in the presence of, of a war, war veteran, which is um, a, a respected um, sort of character in Ukrainian society at the moment to support their political campaigns. And it infuriated me. Um, it made me feel really sad and cross that, you know, we have so many suicide cases in, in Ukraine at the moment of war veterans. We have people who find it really difficult to integrate into civilian society, to find jobs, um, to find themselves, to figure out what happened to them, even those who survived, not to mention the families of those who, who, who lost servicemen and women at, at the front. Um, and that's where the state um, and society needs to focus its attention um, on in order to heal, to move on, um, mm-hmm. is to, to make sure that... Um, you know that that there are opportunities for people to to reintegrate into civilian life. That we that we help those who need therapy. That 
um, people like my brother who are demobilized don't rush back necessarily to the front line because civilian life is full of nightmares. You know, that they are supported. Yeah. That, um, yeah, that, that they are, uh, and, and, and glorification and celebration and once a year uh, uh, speeches by politicians are just not good enough. That they, they, are, they are not mm. helpful. I, I like it, Alessia, especially how you, d- you describe to the end of your book the, the more difficult work of peace. And, and I guess maybe, you know, without putting words in your mouth, because I don't want to do that, but it, that it's part of the story that, that you're also trying to push forward. Um, and, and I see that in veterans, as you say, who are, who are returning, who are demobilized and, and obviously need some kind of functioning social welfare state or need some kind of functioning help not just individual help, like through their families and friends, but, but something much broader to, to process this experience and, and to make sense of, of, of the grief and, and, and the pain and actually you know, also the, phys- the physical wounds, right? Mm-hmm. Um, I, and I, I love that idea because it's, you know, among veterans that this is certainly discussed. Like, I mean, I can tell you I'm, I'm the fourth generation son of a veteran, but I didn't serve. Um, so, you know, in trying to make sense of, of, of what, what it means to a military family, I come from a military family, I know the, the privatization of, of grief. And when people are, are looking out you know, on the brink of, of doing drastic things, um, looking for assistance and, and find a whole lot of bureaucracy and, and silence. So um, this is my own confessional story, but re- returning to home, returning to hometowns is, is so difficult during times of war, especially if you're meeting um, those who those who have served. Um, I, I would like to ask you, if, if I may, you know, since we're, we're talking about things that are so autobiographical through this book, and, and I, I, I actually cried while reading it. I mean, I actually thought... Um, this is so moving and, and I, I wish, you know, that it would be translated um, into Ukrainian and, and, and performed elsewhere. Uh, I, I would hope um, that you could tell our listeners here on New Books Network what, what things you see um, in Ukrainian studies and maybe the role of diasporas in trying to make sense of the war that, that's not over. Um, what, what sort of things would, would you hope in addition to capturing a personality or writing letters or collecting objects and forming archives, those sorts of things that normal historians do. Stephen, thank you. There are several questions, I think, in that one sentence, the yeah. question that you asked. Um, but first of all, I'd like to really uh, thank you for you know telling me how you felt when you were reading this book and that it resonated with you so strongly. It, it means so much, so much uh, to me to, to hear that. It wasn't a, an easy decision to publish something so personal and it really um, matters uh, for me that, you know, that it that people respond in this way. Um, so thank you for sharing that. Um, in, in also in terms of um, translating it into Ukrainian, I have actually translated it into Ukrainian and I'm at the moment looking for a publisher and I, I would really like to see it published in Ukrainian too. The, I'm a little bit nervous about it because part of me feels, that's one of the reasons why I didn't bring the play to Ukraine is because um, I feel like, you know, well, who wants yeah. in Ukraine to hear the story of, of a woman who lives abroad? Uh, yeah. And about it's, a, it's, a, it's a stigma. It really, honestly, it's a taboo. Right? Yeah. 
Yeah. But but still, I feel that not an awful lot is written by civilians. Uh, more and more, the body of literature um, about the war and by witnesses of the war is growing at the moment. And I think that's a good thing that people are writing about it. But quite a lot of it is written by the participants themselves, often um, the soldiers, and not too much is written by civilians. So uh, I think maybe there is a, a space for, for this book to be published in Ukraine, and I hope that it will happen. In terms of um, sort of diasporic communities, I mean, there's lots of things that can be done uh, and are being done. First of all, I am very pleased to see that the various divisions that existed uh, among the Ukrainian diaspora, if I can use this sort of generalized term for for a very diverse uh, com- community of Ukrainians here in the UK, sort of disappeared as soon as the Maidan started. And suddenly when the war started, we, we all connected <laughs> um, in, in ways that perhaps were not possible before. We knew what the task at hand was, and that was to help in every possible way um, those people, the IDPs and, and soldiers and, and Ukrainians more, more generally who were living in Ukraine in these difficult times. Um, and yeah, and somehow our internal divisions of different waves of, of immigrants, uh, you know, generations disappeared. They didn't matter anymore. And that's good. Uh, I think that's good that we have this, we can see this potential of unity among Ukrainians. There's so much that unites us uh, all over the world. Um, I mean, Really, Ukrainians, I think, are becoming or maybe have already become a diaspora nation. There are millions of citizens um, outside of Ukraine um, who live abroad, and there are millions more who self-identify as Ukrainians. They might not be citizens. They might be third, fourth generation Ukrainians, but who still say that they are Ukrainians. And that creates such a potential. It obviously is very sad that so many people have left Ukraine in the last 30 years uh, since Ukraine became independent. But I would like to see it as our strength as well. We live in different countries. We've experienced different um, um, you know, systems. We speak uh, different languages fluently yeah. and, 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 and you know, we're bilingual, trilingual and so on. Um, and we can learn so much from each other. Um, and I think that that, that is something that uh, the international Ukrainian community can certainly do. And that's tell the different stories, uh, tell the story of, of Ukraine more generally and this war in Donbass that is so complex to understand in ways that are understandable to our respective societies. So when I was writing the play, I knew that if I try in in the theater to explain to the audiences what exactly happened in Donbass, I'll lose them straight away. Because Mm, half of those people who came to see our shows did not even realize that the war was still ongoing. Mm-hmm. Um, and that was already a couple of years back. Um, so I, I knew that the way to speak to our audiences here in London and in the UK was through um, um, universal experiences, by talking about grief, by talking about displacement, uh, by talking about this sort of uh, fragmented nature, but also through that explaining the uniqueness of this uh, conflict, the fact that we do have to buy uh, <laughs> uh, provisions for our soldiers, um, you know, the the the, the situation, you know, the uniqueness of the situation in in Ukraine. But I think we need to find the different voices mm-hmm. um, that are relevant to our societies all over the world. And mm-hmm. just the sort of touching on this idea of of peace um, that you mentioned. Um, the, 
there's something that I mentioned in the book, but I also really want to always emphasize whenever I have a chance to talk about the war in Ukraine is that um, something that Natalia Mirimanova, she's a very um, experienced peace builder, said in one of the conferences that I spoke at. And she said that um, there are conflicts that produce wars and wars that produce conflicts. And that the case of Ukraine is the latter, the uh, there wasn't, uh, you know, it's the war that produced the conflict. The, the conflict wasn't really there to start with. There were differences, there were disagreements, there were misunderstandings, but not a conflict. But after seven years of war, the conflict is there and we need to face up to it and we need to start looking for ways of how we're going to move on in the future with so much blood, with so much death, so much pain and grief um, mm-hmm. that's been experienced uh, by Ukrainian society. These are the questions we need to ask ourselves. How are we going to overcome this and how are we going to move on um, and, and how are we going to find tools for reconciliation? And in my view, the, the most important thing is to talk about it, talk about it openly, honestly, not instrumentalizing history, uh, but by looking at the context uh, of this particular conflict. And and I think that's going to be the best way to honor um, mm-hmm. the memory of those who, who, who died in it, civilians and, and the military. Yeah, thank you. Thank you, Alessia. And and I think, you know, covering the things that, that we have, we've covered a lot of ground. I'm really happy that, that you um, mentioned your theater company, Molody Theater in London, um, just to get to the, these issues, um, not just the, the serious issue of mourning and grief, but also the, the humor and the laughter and the trust and the friendship that, that emerges um, in, in communities of mourning. My final question for you, really, since we're winding down here at the New Books Network, is, is if you could maybe suggest to our listeners other works um, in your field of, of inquiry. I, I know you have a, a wonderful preface by Andrei Kurkov, and I hope people read his his books. And Cynthia Enlow is someone I really admire. Uh, but perhaps if you could recommend two or three books and then talk a little about your current interests and research projects. Great. Thanks, Stephen. I'll do that with great pleasure. Uh, I usually have several books on the go um, when I'm um, that I'm reading. So, so three or four for pleasure or fun. It's hard to call them pleasure because they tend to be <laughs> really sort of um, not particularly cheerful subject matters, but still, and then another two for work. Um, so so I'll, I'll probably mention several books uh, for that matter. Uh, Grave Ease by Andrei Kurkov. Please do read, uh, read that uh, novel. It's really wonderful. Um, it focuses on a civilian. A, c- a civilian defines himself in the gray zone of, of, uh, of the war zone. And it just, uh, the way that uh, Kurkov describes this individual and and his journey and his bees <laughs> yes. is extremely moving. Um, it's it's a very well paced uh, book. I I had a feeling of being sort of walked. Um, carefully through a minefield <laughs> but like you know by someone who gently holds my hand <laughs> that's mm. that's how i felt when i was yeah. reading yeah, it yeah. please do read it um for people who want to uh, have a an accessible intelligent but also relatively gentle introduction to ukrainian studies i would recommend more or less anything written by serhii yakelchik and serhii plokhi um the the uh, Gates of Europe, in particular, by Sri Plachy, um, is an excellent uh, introduction to Ukraine. I think it explains the complexity in in a very um, 
accessible manner uh, and 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 it's an, a bo- both of those authors write in english um if you can read ukrainian i would uh, highly recommend uh, olena stashkina's work um, sadly it mm. hasn't been translated into english yet her movoyu boha in god's language extracts ah, have been translated already right. um and her brand new book uh, which is called uh, smert leva cecila malasens the death of lion cecil uh, was meaningful is uh, absolutely fascinating i really hope it gets translated into english but if you can read russian and ukrainian please read elena stashkina's work um i would also encourage people to read um, irina shovalova's poetry um mm. anything and everything written by her uh, a lot of it is translated her recent collection of uh, poems translated by olena jennings is called pray to the empty wells um mm. really moving uh, really beautiful intelligent poetry um mariana kianovska uh, is another poet that uh, we actually just held a um a conversation with her yesterday on the 80th anniversary of babanyar massacre um mm-hmm. and her her poems voices of babanyar have been translated um into english and will be coming out soon uh, with huri Harvard um and it's one of the most moving um um uh, pieces of work that I've 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 read over the last few years so I would certainly recommend that. Thank um, you. Remember, and look, there's, yeah, there's lots yeah, did, of like la- last <laughs> there's so many things we can talk about it's a great start like you know the, the introduction I'm building my my syllabus thanks to you. <laughs> <laughs> But that's so, wonderful that we can now. I remember when I started teaching Ukraine uh Ukrainian history there were so few sources in English and now it's no longer the case and that's wonderful. <laughs> yeah. And what are you working on now? This is the last like 60 second question. What, what, are, what are you writing? What what's your new play or what are you writing? I am, I, I am doing my very best to complete my academic manuscript on the <laughs> women in the Second World War, women who um served in the Red Army and Ukrainian insurgent army. So this is a work about gender and militarization. Um um yeah. <laughs> I, I hope to complete it soon. <laughs> Excellent. Thank you so much, Alessia. We, we've covered so much ground, and I, I just really would like to thank you for for your time here at New Books Network. We've been speaking um, with Dr. Alessia Kramichuk. She is the author of a new book, which is just out, and it's called A Loss, The Story of a Dead Soldier Told by His Sister. This is published by Ibidem. Uh, part of the Ukrainian Voices series distributed by Columbia University Press 2021. Thank you again. I want to congratulate you um, on this wonderful and, and moving, really, I think, extraordinary book that I hope people will read. Thank you so much again. Stephen, thank you very much for giving me this opportunity to talk about it. And I'm your host here at New Books Network, Stephen Siegel. Until next time. <laughs>